Welcome to CareerPod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode is a member of the CareerPod team, Mr. Gary Wallrap. Welcome, Bob. Uh, hello, yeah. Welcome to CareerPod, and uh, glad to have you here today. I wanted to just uh, discuss your career and starting with maybe a little bit about your earlier life or your uh your educational preparation. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I just took um, normal classes. I took woodshop and other stuff. I don't know how much prepared me for it, but uh, I was always working with tools and this and that growing up. In terms of after high school, do you do any military or did you go into uh, an aviation mechanic technician program? Yeah, we went into uh, East Coast Aerotech, which which is a AV, uh, aeronautical technician uh, training program. It was at the time it was like twenty months straight with no vacation other than two weeks at Christmas, and you couldn't miss more than twenty five hours of school in those two, uh, twenty months. So you had to make it up. I see. Did you actually uh, sort of have in field uh, activities where you worked on uh, actual uh, airplanes? Yeah, well, at the school, they always they had a project going all the time. They were actually making a an airplane, and they would uh, sell it as a, it was a biplane, a trainer, and um, that was part of the job was to learn how to make the old wing uh, work with wood, uh, uh, all the different uh, ribs and so forth, and you had to coat the fly surfaces on it. It might take them two years to build it, but uh, everybody had a, a hand in it at one point or another. And they kept on making them all the time, you know, Right. all the time. Now, did you take a test? Was there any kind of a test you had to take to complete that program? Well, you had to take a test at the school. Then you had to make your own arrangements to take one with the FAA. Okay. Anyway, you you got through it. And uh, I know you've been in this field for many, many years. You've seen some changes. But I'd like to ask a few questions about, uh, you know, uh, some of the tasks and responsibilities, sort of your typical day, uh, maybe the shift from beginning to end. How did that work? Well, you, you uh, uh, see, when you started out, just about every, everybody works nights. And the reason for that is because the airplanes are on the ground and that's when they need their work done. There's a skeleton crew on days and a little larger one in the afternoons when they start coming in for the overnight. But uh, you would go into work, and they'd have a get an assignment, and then you're pretty much on your own for the next eight hours, uh, unless somebody else had a. If you got done early, but you were your own boss, and what you did, you worked at your own. Speed. You worked at your own speed. The supervisor might push if they wanted something that, uh, had to be fixed, but they usually put a, 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 you know, somebody on there that had experience with that item. Sure. So you get a work order pretty much, and you would uh, have to go. Well, yeah, I say, a, okay. Well, the, the typical day, the, depending without problems, you would get a uh, an assignment. And first off, you you would just walk around the airplane and make notes of anything you might find wrong. Um, and you, you know, you check tires, brakes, uh, shake things, kick the tires, check the pressures, look at the brake wear patterns. Uh, that was a layover service. And then that was done every three nights. And then you had a 100-hour check, and they had all kinds of different checks done at different time. Phase checks done in segmented, so you could do a segment a night. 
over, you know, like a minor overhaul, but they they, they put a crew on there every night to, to uh, do it in segments rather than keep the airplane down for two days. They could, you know, do it in segmented. But you you would do, work anywhere from toilets to computers. You were a jack of all trades. If something didn't work, that's what they called. I see. And uh, was there a um, an apprentice period, a period where you had heavy training in the beginning, where you were shadowing someone to help you? Uh, that would depend on the airline. Uh, the, the first airline, you basically got your experience on OJT, and same with the second one. And the, uh, uh, the third airline, they did send you to school, so before... Um, so you were certified, so to speak, to sign the airplane off. You know, but uh, that was as they're getting more uh, technically advanced and so forth. Sure. Now, Bob, you were working on, uh, let's call it, the big jets, uh, and you you saw a number of different generations come and go. Uh, what was like the the first plane that you worked on? Well, basically, that would be the the. Lockheed Electra, and they did. They just got rid of the. Um, can't remember the name of it now. Constellation. They had a Connie. They Connies. They had just. That was a piston airplane, four engine. They had just gotten rid of that very soon after I started. And then we worked on the Electra, which was a turboprop, a four engine turboprop, which actually is still in use today. So they were talking. The, the engine was designed in the fifties, and it's still going strong. In 2020. How about that? And then you yeah. moved the jets. Then the jets, the full jets came in. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But they still use a, still a lot of turbo props, which is what the electric was uh, out there. That would be on the, well, that, that would be when you, we call them the commuter or feeder airlines. A lot of them use jets, but there are also a lot of turbo props on there too. Sure. The uh, Boeing, uh, the Boeing line, it, it, with the uh, 747 and the bigger ones, uh, that came in as well. Oh, yeah. Well, they, uh, they what, the 747 come out in the early 70s, I think, or yeah, thereabouts. So you had big ones almost all my, you know, whole time out there. Right. Okay. So uh, you happen to work third shift, you said, and that's because the that's when the planes were I, there. They're ready, yep, you ready pick- to be fixed. With a union, you would pick your shift if there was an opening. Otherwise, you would have to keep on going, you know, days, afternoons, midnights. And you also pick days off on a on a, on a uh, schedule, whatever was open uh, with your seniority. And then you pick your vacations with seniority. Sure. Now, uh, no. did uh, this is in the Boston area at, at a major airport. Uh, working third shift in the winter, that must have been a little bit difficult with the cold weather. Oh yes, you tried to tried your best naturally to dress for it. Um, I mean, you can go in there dress for the coldest day of the year and land up having to work on an airplane. So here you're long underwear and everything else on. Gets a little warm. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. It's it's tough to prepare what you you know you don't know what to uh, you might get assigned. But at night it's cold and the airports are usually very window, just like a field, open field, and a lot of um, Boston was wind off the water so. Like a lot of other airports, you got uh, extra problems to deal with. Sure. Uh, the uh, so, in terms of a typical problem where you had to shut a plane down, or you know, there can be many problems. I understand, but was there one recurring thing that would really uh, happen a lot with with these airplanes? 
Well, they let's see uh, what happened a lot. I mean, everything was different. You had a, a, a thousand different things could make it go wrong. Uh, if it could be, uh, you know, an engine problem, a blades, it could be something as simple as a tire going out. And you don't have a tire handy. Usually, obviously, they try to keep stuff like that handy. Uh, brakes, or it could be uh, something that was manufactured and had to be replaced because it didn't meet the standards, or they found a problem with it, so that had to be done immediately, or well, you know, within a reasonable amount of time, or whatever. Yeah, so you had stock. Right. So stock was a tough to move it around. When you got 50 stations on a large airline, and you know, I don't know how many 30 might have maintenance now, trying to get the right pieces to the right places at the right time. Can be a can be a problem. A lot of times you'd be it'd be a hurry up and wait. Then you had weather problems. The airplane didn't come in. <laughs> yes, I can imagine that that happens every once in a while as well. You know, continue along and do the best you can, and go home in the morning. Or if the airplane come in very late, you'd work overtime to get it back out again. Okay. Uh, in terms of uh, the role of emerging technologies, I think how did the emerging technologies did they grow and grow, and you had to be retrained on any of those? In the early days, you would go up and let's say you had to check the reading lights on what they call an interior check. You'd have to check every every light, no smoking light, reading light, uh, light. Now, when you got up into the newer planes, the Airbus A320, the newer 747s, the newer any type, you could just go to a uh, panel and um, integrate or to get the panel actually printed out. If you went in the cockpit, you could print this out right in the cockpit, all the lights that were broken. Um, and a lot of things, the problem with the airplane, because now you, the the A320 had, uh, I think it was 87 microprocessors in it. So they were all, all these little mini computers or processors would send information to the main computer, of which you usually had three, and you, of course, you, you integrate, uh, you know, um, con uh, communicate with that one, com whatever computer you decided to use, and you could get, well, this didn't work, and it would give you an idea what might be wrong with it, uh, some of the items. So you could actually talk to the airplane a little. Kind of like the car, when you had that onboard computer, you could actually integrate the, the automobile computer and get a code. It was very simple. Something like that you would see in the automobile, I mean, a lot more sophisticated, but it would be very similar to that type of, uh, you know, communicating with the uh, computer. Sure. Now, uh, and as you said, there's a any number of things that can be problematic. Uh, when you worked on a shift, did you have colleagues that you could bounce ideas off or get a second opinion, or were you pretty much out there by yourself? Usually you would, you, uh, you, you had manuals for every airplane out there on microphone. And you could go through the uh, what's called a reader printer, and you know if you get it to, uh, act with that, or if you saw somebody, hey, you haven't seen this before, and uh, you know, and it turned out uh, he might be able to give you a pointer. Or, sure. You know, yeah, that that's great. Uh, and but you had to learn to read those manuals. Uh, a lot of people yes, don't yes. like that, and uh, I guess how many you must have had an awful lot of manuals. Oh yes, you had, a, you had all kinds of manuals. You had, you had, the interiors used to change, so you couldn't go to that airplane manual, uh, manual just for the interior uh, for the airplane. You had to find an interior manual to fit, and then you had updates. You had to make sure you checked a 30-day folder that had updates that were, weren't um, in the microfilm yet before you went any further. Sure. Anyway, uh, so um, in terms of. Uh 
the satisfying part of, of this, this job. And I know to do this work, it's it must be tremendously satisfying when you find a major problem and, and you're able to fix it. Yeah. Oh yes. No. It's it, uh, you know you had your you had your good good nights and your bad nights. You try work your hardest and you couldn't find something and. You could turn around and find something that somebody else has worked on all night, and this is what it is, and they'll go out, and that's what it was. You know, just a experience counts, that's for sure. Sure. Uh, I would say experience must count. As, as the years went on, uh, you, see, you start to see the same problems come up, and, and you, you sort of like a doctor has to remember, uh, you know, certain situations medically. You have, you'll see some things mechanically or technically uh, that – that are recurring in an airplane. Yep. That's good. Uh, if, if you couldn't fix a problem, uh, you know, that's the, uh, the frustrating part. Well, they did have ways to not, not, uh, to continue the airplane out. They would call it a control item if it wasn't super important, like if you had a, a number of reading lights that the socket was broken or somebody took a piece of the button out or you could put that on an item with a control item and it would be fixed when it got to a place that had parts or time. And then they would take a minimum equipment listing, which meant it could go without this. Uh, it was a computer, one of the three computers, well, you couldn't do an autopilot now because there's a... Uh, a triple backup system, but the airplane could still fly on two computers as long as you didn't, you know, the uh, autopilot, uh, part, whatever portion wasn't working, was, uh, you know, operational. The rest of it could be, they could fly it. They just had to fly it manually. A lot of pilots didn't like that. <laughs> I can imagine now. And how about the passengers? If, if they were ever to know what goes on backstage or behind the curtain, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, and I know you, you guys kept you know, the airplane in the air, but you also identifying potential future problems. And, uh, that was, that was, you, you, you identified the futures and you either got, get, you know, if you found something you didn't have parts for or a brake that was getting very close or at it or near the limit, you could get a minimum equipment. So that would get fixed as soon as possible. Or within three days, usually you had three days on a, a minimum equipment item. Sure. Uh, and I, I would imagine uh, that everything must be documented. Uh, was there a particular place in the plane or in the shop where you documented everything, the status of all the repairs? Whenever you fixed something, you had a, uh, anything you signed on, you changed the tire, you had to give the maintenance manual reference uh, to, to show that you uh, actually torqued it down to the proper thing and followed the procedure for um, signing it off. And you would sign it off with the maintenance manual reference and accomplish within the, you know, uh, prescribed uh, manual. So everything, I don't know the light bulb, but anything major, uh, not even major, some minor items, if they had a reference in the manual, you would have to use it. Okay. The, uh, uh, so you had to be pretty clever mechanically and, and also have the will to troubleshoot. Uh I imagine you'd have meters and different mechanical equipment, but uh, you really have to learn how to troubleshoot and and know when something could lead to another thing that'll lead to another thing. Uh, it sounds pretty complex to me. Yep, you could be out there looking for a wiring problem, and usually you try to break it in half. I Meaning, if it was one that had a a, a sensor in the tail that didn't work, and you were reading it from the cockpit, you try to break it in half. You would check either end. 
and you go in the middle and start going forward or backwards, trying to at different bulkheads and try to uh, chase the wiring down if it was a wiring problem. Obviously, with the light, you'd check the bulb first in the socket, but uh, in the circuit breaker on the other end. But you'd try to break it down into smaller uh, parcels, so to speak. And even if you didn't that you could tell somebody that the first half was checked or the first whatever, you tell them what you checked and where, and they could either believe you later on or they'd go further and check uh, if they had faith in you and check further down the line, sure. the other half. So let's picture that the shift is ending now. You know, you typically went on and worked an eight-hour shift, but if there were problems, you could be in overtime mode. But when you leave that shift, uh, Bob, did you have to get a supervisor to uh, sign off on things and clear you, uh, you know, to pretty much go home? Uh, uh, Whatever, whatever, uh, they didn't really sign off on any. If it was your work, you signed it off. Now, if you were around multiple people, uh, were on a on a job. Usually, uh, they would sign off their portions or their items within the logbook or or a, a supplement sheet, or uh, you know somewhere their their uh, uh, job. What they did would be documented, and then the only bottom line would be the person who released the airplane. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, that, that's pretty good in terms of uh, the union environment and uh, the. Uh, the compensation, I want to, and I know compensation grew through the number of years, but I wanted to get a, a just a ballpark figure. What so that someone coming out of school, maybe a year or so experience, the range that they could earn, the ballpark range that they w- would earn on a, on a normal week, not an overtime week. Do you have an idea what that ballpark would be? It depends if you went with a uh, fixed base operator, which would be something at a small airport, they would pay the pay the least, which would probably be, uh, I don't know what the today's wage scale scales are, but they would be on a comparatively lower. Then you would go the next step up would be the uh, regional airlines or feeder airlines, however you would want. Now, some of those would be in the smaller airports, but they would still pay more than the, which would be a lot of what you call a fixed-based, but you would get more, that would be the second group, and basically the major, major airlines would be a third group that paid the most. Now, the uh, FAA, Federal Aeronautical Administration, um, they uh, they police this activity. They they check up on the airlines and, and the, the mechanics and the repairs. Is that right? Yeah. I was at a, the small airline, and uh, oh, they came and spent, it was only two of us, we were out of Boston. It was a small in-between airplane, but the two larger ones that I worked for, they uh, they spent eight hours with us, watched every everything we did. How about that? Yep. Were they? You think they had strong mechanical background as well? Most of them did. Most of them were actually airline mechanics. Uh, as a matter of fact, I knew quite a few. They they started out, let's say, with Eastern Airlines, for instance, and uh, when that went uh, belly up. Uh, they would leave, and a lot of the supervisors ended up going, and mechanics, going to the FAA, and they became inspectors. That's interesting. That was probably a, um, a pretty good job at that point. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. It was. I don't know what I don't know what they paid, but, you know, it was a different, uh, you didn't really get your hands dirty, but there was a lot of paperwork involved, you know, for that, for that person, and the hours... You know, you would think it's not a nine-to-five job, even for the inspector. 
Yes, in case, if there's an emergency situation, or God forbid, a crash. Uh, but he spent, they spent their eight hours with uh, with us. They was midnights. They have they were on the mid they were, they were I wouldn't say midnight shift, but they spent the midnight shift with us. They might be on a day shift to see what they do in a hangar when the hangars are open all day. Uh, being uh, something is being fixed, they can come at um, any time they want, really. That's interesting. Uh, and then, not to be negative, but I guess every in your in your experience, you there were some crashes along the way. Uh, is that something that a special team is brought in, or do they would they bring the mechanics like you, the technicians like you, to look at a, a crash? Yeah, the F, now the FA mostly would would uh, they, they, all the time they would handle any crash, and they'd have a go team or something that would be basically set up to go at a moment's notice or within hours' notice to go out there. The uh, I did work on a uh, what is it the uh, one one went in the harbor in uh, Boston Lake I think it was 1985 I did work on that one in the water. <laughs> it was in the water and you had you had to go so in the water the oh. into the water right next to a jetty uh, uh, and we were able to uh, we didn't want to take the fuel out of the wings so they wouldn't uh, uh, I'd open up the panels for them and walk through the airplane to see if. Uh, any bodies in there. Yeah. Um, another thought I have in terms of your own safety. Uh, we were talking about all the safety factors for the airplane, but I mean, uh, did OSHA come in and inspect your shops, your facilities? Was that something that was important as well? It, uh, OSHA, they, they usually didn't bother you unless they had something to, uh, um, how do I say it? They, a complaint usually because we never really saw knew we knew of OSHA. You had regulations you were supposed to go by, but you never really saw OSHA unless it was. Well, we never really had a problem. I had heard about others. You know, I mean, not to say they, 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 you operated the safest, but usually you'd have to have a complaint before OSHA would really get involved. Other than the normal, maybe in, you know they wouldn't. They didn't come out that night with us with a problem. You know that they were informed about. But they were they were basically regulatory in a sense, right? Um, Bob, uh, have you had any interesting, funny, or exciting stories that you would like to share? Uh, you know about the workplace or experiences uh, in the workplace. Well, you could go to like there was one airplane, a DC-10, we had that uh, the only time the engine malfunctioned was at thirty-five thousand feet. <laughs> They, you were able to, you knew the major, the problem, and you, you kept replacing this part, and it turned out that these parts only malfunctioned when they were frozen. Okay. Yeah, at that, at that height, they at would that freeze height, up. They would get cold, and they would stop functioning properly. It wasn't a, they could still fly that way, but they, uh, with it, but it was something you had to fix. And uh, they, they kept shipping these same two parts back and forth, and both of them had the same problem. So you go to the overhaul, then finally somebody went to the overhaul and say these two things have been changed in and out and keep coming back to taste okay. And they tested okay because they, uh, they were warm. Uh, I tell you, um, I'm, very, I'm very impressed with the complexity and the, all the moving parts you were dealing with. And uh, They even know. had a, uh, there was one repair you could do with a hammer. <laughs> That's all you'd have to use, a hammer. The law, the uh, maintenance manual gave you a reference and everything to use a hammer, a mallet, heavy mallet, rubber hammer, 
rubber mallet. High, very high tech, but very low tech as well. At the yeah, amazing. Uh, Bob, first of all, uh, thank you for this. Yep. All the great observations uh, you shared with us in terms of what it means to be in this career. Um, did you find that it was a rewarding career overall? Uh, I did. My, my wife was very happy sometimes. She had a work night. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I want to thank you for participating in, in uh, Career Pod and uh, we appreciated all your observations, your thoughts, uh, and uh, we'd like to say goodbye and have a great day. Okay, well, thank you very much.